brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me, as always, is my better half, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Really good, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I am glad to be here talking to you about games. We're going to be talking about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter, and our feature game this week, which is Witchstone by Martino Chiacchiera and Reiner Knizia, our favorite designer. Our favorite. So, Walker, what'd you play last week? We got to play The Cure. You taught it to us on Tabletop Simulator. Well, we... Pandemic The Cure. Pandemic The Cure. We did not play the band fronted by Robert Smith. We did not. We could have played it in the background. That would have been interesting. See, the thing is, I have all these puns related to The Cure and Pandemic The Cure. Like, as I commented on the live stream, because we live streamed it, I did have a, a elaborate series of names for the diseases that all connected to... The, the Cure songs or albums, like, for example, The Red Disease was Disintegration. And, you know, they got more clever from there. Not that, you know, calling it Disintegration isn't super clever. The very height of erudition. But anyway, nobody seems to care. I'm not even super big into The Cure. I don't have anything against them. <laughs> anyway, you were talking about Pandemic The Cure. Yeah, I, think, I thought it was very interesting. I like how they boiled down the essence of what is Pandemic, and they turned it into this very interesting, because, you know, rolling dice is fun. Yes. We didn't get the actual tactile feel of rolling it because of Tabletop Simulator, but you sort of, you know, got the, you know, knowing how, you know, press your luck type game, specialized dice, specialized abilities, so, you know, you're getting, your, you get to do your own little thing. I thought it was really neat. I like how the smaller number of geographical areas kind of reduces the emphasis on getting from point A to point B. So there are a lot of rules that just aren't relevant. So, for example, research stations and the like and getting to a research station or using research station to bootstrap your movement just doesn't exist. I don't object to those elements, but it's nice to see Pandemic kind of shorn of those elements. And you also get a an uneven distribution about where disease is going to show up, and that's very clearly represented on the region disks. But you're right. I, I think that the translation to digital form loses a lot of its charm because Rolling Dice is very fun, and Pandemic the Cure, especially once you have Experimental Meds, the expansion into it, is swimming in different kinds of custom dice and just being able to play around with all of them. It's it's surprisingly a large part of the appeal. Not that I dislike playing in digital form. I very much wanted to introduce this to Dewey, who is probably amongst our circle the biggest appreciator of Pandemic, and you have sworn off regular Pandemic forever and always. And... <laughs> In spirit, mostly. In spirit, mostly. But I really like The Cure, and I'm surprised that both you and Dewey had not tried it yet. Yeah, there, well, I did a long time ago. I did try it once. Oh, I'm sorry. I was mistaken. And there's a lot of decisions to make while you're there, because you've got the all the diseases. Go, once you've cured them, they go into the center, and that slowly builds up. Then there's your special abilities. There's putting stuff in vials. There's uh, teleporting people around. There's all sorts of things. Lots of decision space, things to figure out, you know, making sure that doesn't build up in the middle so it doesn't explode. I love it. It's good. 
I'm a large fan of almost all of the Pandemic versions that I played. Actually, the, the Legacy versions are probably my least favorite, all told, with the exception of the Cthulhu version, which I think was mostly just a misstep. And the Cure I find very, very delightful. It solos really well, far better than normal Pandemic, because then you have to mul manage multiple hands, and that, that, something about that bothers me for solo gaming. But I have soloed Pandemic the Cure many a time, because it's quick to set up, quick to play, and you get to play with different characters, and that's always neat. Yeah, it's designed by Matt Leacock surprisingly, and put out by Z-Man Games. And like you said, it played so quickly that we played yet another game on our normal Saturday morning Twitch stream. We played Fairy Tale, which was completely 100% scripted right up to the scoring and everything else. And that was so fast, we played it twice and just reminded me of how fantastic Fairy Tale is. So seldom, and I don't know why this is, but so seldom in other drafting games... Do you have the opportunity where you're looking at your hand of cards and saying, I would kind of like this card, but here's this other card that my opponent to my right or left, depending on where you're drafting, would really love. What do I do with the situation? And that kind of tension and that kind of trade-off is so often absent. When I play other drafting games, I almost always just take whatever I want most and I completely ignore what everyone else has. I think it's because it's so tight. I'm yeah. thinking about it, it's so tight and... Other drafting games just let you outscore your opponents. Regardless if they get what they want, you get what you need, and you just try to outscore them. This, you, you can really make a difference with hate drafting. That and you draft five cards and only play three of them. So the opportunity cost of taking a card that you don't want to play is much, much lower. And I'm actually surprised that more drafting games don't do that. Because it's such a simple and straightforward way to increase card flow and decision angst without any rules overhead. And we've been playing Fairy Tale ever since it came out, and we're huge, huge fans of it. Sadly, the AI in the Ramoon Flame tabletop simulator mod is not particularly good. I've commented on this before. But other than that, it's fabulous. We, we were showing it to Dewey, and again, Dewey hadn't played Fairy Tale before, but he was immediately struck by the quality of the implementation. And I'll, I'll keep repeating it. What I want out of a scripted mod, or indeed any mod or any adaptation is, I want to be able to just click on a card to play it. I don't know why this is so complicated. <laughs> why in so many other even first-party adaptations, when I booted up the Warhammer Underworlds first-party app, and they were telling me that in order to play a card, I needed to drag it up the screen, I almost vomited in pure disgust. That might be a slight exaggeration. I don't know. And I'm surprised they haven't, and they still haven't changed that yet. Like, I do not believe the clunkiness of that Underworlds app. Yeah, I mean, Tabletop Simulator kind of gets a bit of a pass because of how it works, but I'm still amazed that there's no default notion of a simplified way of playing a card. You know, you've got these mods and these setups such that they're meant to accommodate a very, very common procedure, i.e. taking a card and either putting it to a play to be played later area or to a hand or to a discard pile, and it's always this, lab this laborious process. Anyway... Fairy Tale is a joy. It is probably one of my favorite filler-length games. It is probably my favorite pure drafting game. And it definitely puts other things to shame of a similar length and weight, like Fantasy Realms, which, again, is a natural comparison class only by virtue of them both having excellent adaptations by Rum and Flame. And I really think that if you haven't played a quality drafting game yet, you haven't really found one that sings, I encourage you to track down a copy of Fairy Tale and give it a shot. You might be very surprised. It's designed by Satoshi Nakamura and published by Z-Man Games. So hell froze over. It did. Pigs flew. It was very cold. Finally, you've got your copy of Plantopia. I'm, of course, referring to the fact that for months now, months, I've been hearing from Walker in Pledge of Indifference about how Plantopia is going to come any day now. Like the veritable Godot, we've been hearing about Plantopia, and it finally arrived. And Mark, were the puns worth the wait? I have to say that the puns were so good. <laughs> so each card in Plantopia is a plant. And the plants are an aggressive series of puns. Some of them are very straightforward, like the Trigonoma tree, which is a tree with a triangular arrangement of leaves. My favorite of the puns, because we could just spend the entire episode talking about our favorite puns, so I'm, I'm going to limit myself to, to, to two. There's the trigonometry. My favorite one is the carnation. The carnation is a flower with a flag of a car growing up the side. And the flavor text says, the carnation is a nation full of cars. What can I say? It appeals to me. <laughs> we were just, the entirety of the game, as, as cards were being dealt out, every once in a while we'd look down and either groan or snicker. Or, and then the, the pictures are adorable, above and beyond the actual puns. 
They're very, very cute. All your action cards are keyed to your whatever vegetable or fruit you happen to quote-unquote be. I was the banana, so there was a picture of the banana suntanning with its peel off. Anyway, it's so cute. <laughs> what this, is all, it? this all being said, it's a very nice little light game. You're growing your plants. You're turning them into bigger plants. You're trying to combo off some things. Some of them have abilities that happen as soon as you play them. Some of them have abilities when you play other cards. It was very inoffensive, and I didn't mind it whatsoever. And the and the art is amazing, and like you said, the puns bring it all together, and it's a great little fun card game. I think inoffensive is a good word for it. Most of the abilities and most of the scoring conditions I didn't find especially engaging or clever. What I did quite like and struck me as somewhat, somewhat novel was the weather system. Every plant will grow if it's provided with the, the appropriate weather, and there's four different kinds of weather, and there is some random amount of weather that's going to come out from a, a shared deck, one that you know of and one that you don't know of. And every player puts in a new element. They're all revealed, and that will determine what weather is going to go. But this can be supplemented by one-shot bonus weather cards that you can use just for yourself. And I really like that element of looking at and seeing what kind of plants to take based on what weather patterns I knew my opponents were playing. I started observing what other people started throwing in and then deciding what weather to throw in myself based on what was already visible and collecting bonus cards using at the right time. That part I thought was really good. Yeah, and the fact that you can sort of like, like you said, plan your deck out, have your plants all sort of need the same sort of elements so you know... Or different kinds of elements. There, I, I went both ways over the course of the game. Sometimes I, I, I piled up on all the same, and sometimes I diversified, knowing that whatever came out, I'd be okay. That is Plantopia, the card game, designed by Daryl Chow and produced by Oregame. I've just got a whole bunch of Twitch stuff. So if you're into dice rolling games, Twitch is the place for you. They they do all sorts of roll and writes because everyone can participate. They let you download the, ah. the sheet and they they work on particular roll and writes, the ones that work with, you know, unlimited numbers and you take the dice. So I got to play one called Paleontologist where it was all these bones on sort of a grid and they'd roll two dice and one die would tell you what color you could use because you had three different colors of shapes and the other die would tell you which particular shape. And you got bonuses if you used all the same color or shape around a bone. And, and that it was, it's a, it was, it's an interesting little roll and write. We're not big on roll and writes, but as, as they go, it wasn't terrible. Paleontologist is on, is designed by Joe Holt and put, and it's just a web publisher. He's, he's going to be putting it out as an actual game soon. This is sort of like a prototype or just a sort of demo type game. Other Twitch stuff I played, I've been doing all sorts of unboxing this week. I played Shards of Infinity and sort of put it up against Dominion. Dominion's coming out with a new app. So we played uh, Dominion first. It's Dominion. <laughs> and then I wanted to show people a far superior game, which is Shards of Infinity, where <laughs> it just uses everything Dominion did, like the fun parts of Dominion and just expands on that in sort of like the clank type of system where there are different uh, suits of cards and they all sort of combo off each other and you get to, uh, you know, attack your opponents and build up this, you know, your infinity stones and, and you know, you're either attacking your opponent down to zero or you're slowly building your infinity shards up to 30 and then trying to get that last card out to finish the game. I agree with you that I in that I prefer Shards of Infinity to Dominion, and it's interesting. Uh, I played Shards of Infinity as well, independently, this time the physical version, with the two expansions into it, both of which I think significantly improve the game, the first one especially, Relics of the Future. and But they have radically different approaches to combos, and people who really like Dominion really like the way Dominion works. Namely, you look at the 10 cards that are available, you figure out how the card combos are going to work, that guides your purchasing decisions. And you get to go forth and do that. Shards of Infinity has a much more simple, accessible combo system, whereby largely you're encouraged to focus on a given suit sometimes. But that's not even necessary. You know, Dominion, if you just putter along and, and get random assortments of cards, they're probably not going to work very well together. And at that point, you're probably going to be defeated even by big money. Shards of Infinity, on the other hand, you don't really need to exert those suit bonuses, especially since many cards don't even have any suit bonuses. So you can just, you know, 
go and do whatever you want to do, more or less. It's a much simpler game. It's a much faster game. Yeah, the, but the most fantastic part, at least for me, for Shards of Infinity, is the fact that you're working on a certain suit or a combo of suits, and then suddenly the the display comes up and there's no cards that you want. And it has this fantastic mercenary system where you can just one-shot one of those cards, get its ability for that turn, and off to the discard pile. It doesn't bog down your deck, nor does it have like any money cards. Well, they do in a way. Some of the, you know, the, the yeah, a fair number of them. They do, are but, about but more at least, money. but at least they have that suit color, so other cards will combo off of it for its suit bonus as well as the money that it gives. So, and a lot of the money cards let you draw another card afterwards, so they're not like bogging down your deck. So it's weird. We seem to have very different experiences of Shards of Infinity, despite <laughs> both really liking it. I don't view it as about exerting large quantities of combos. I view it instead about trying to manage a series of effects and trying to build a deck that is able to respond adequately to whatever my opponent's doing. Sometimes I need defense, sometimes I need healing, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I can just go pure offense. Now, part of that, of course, as you say, is influenced by what comes out of the market. And part of that is influenced in turn by what relic I can acquire and or what relic my opponent does. But, you know, in terms of its innovations, I agree with you. The mercenary system is really, really good. You can use a card without it gumming up your deck, and it triggers immediately, unlike just, you know, putting it in your discard pile, it'll show up sooner or later. And the mastery system, which is basically a threshold that various cards have, you know, at 10, 20, 15 mastery, this card will do more things. And shockingly... It is often very, very difficult to decide whether you want to spare that one extra unit of currency to increase your mastery turn on turn on turn. That's the part I really like about Shards of Infinity. The whole mastery system, I think, is really, really well done. And especially since it's pretty much the only... That and the mercenary system are pretty much the only novel thing when compared to all the Realms games. Because it's very clearly derivative of that model of gameplay. I was about to say the same thing. If you ever played Star Realms, this has a definitely feel to it. You sort of... Throw out all your cards and you and you develop the two the two pools. You have your big attack pool and then you have your money pool and you use it however you like. And it also has in Star Realms you have these space stations, but in Shards of Infinity you have these heroes and they sort of go in your back row and they'll stay out from turn to turn. And in in Star Realms you have two different time two different types of space stations. Ones you have to attack and ones that you can. In this in Shards of Infinity case you can. Or not. So you can just attack your opponent directly, or they will keep using these heroes over and over each turn, or you can, you know, destroy their heroes. Champions. Champions. And that concludes our full review of (laughs) Shards of Infinity. This is designed by Gary Arendt and Justin Gary. Really? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And published by Stoneblade Entertainment. So to go back to the Dominion app quickly, a lot of people have been playing it. The the AI have been crushing them, like doubling the score of any people that are trying to play it. Uh, and the AI goes so fast that you can't see what they're doing sometimes. Ooh. And the other thing it doesn't do is it doesn't give you like a scoring synopsis at the end. So you have no idea. It just spits out a number? It just spits out the number. <laughs> this is your score. So wow. you have no idea. You know, how did the AI get to that score? Like how many cards did he have in his deck? How many curses did I have? No, it's just. Maybe in the maybe in the first patch, all that will be replaced by is just the sound of the computer laughing at you. You don't even see numbers. More than likely. <laughs> On the topic of deck builders, I got to try the new deck builder by Nigel Buckle and David Zirkze. This, of course, is following provincial, federal, and international law that all games be co-designed with David Zirkze. This is Imperium Classics, also following the trend of everything having the word Imperium in it. I am tired of these things, but anyway. Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends are two complementary games. Each of them have eight different civilizations. I'm a little bit leery about the fact that Imperium Legends has the one empire that is the Far East, namely the Qin Dynasty. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of sort of, ooh, the mystical orient a little bit. But anyway, in the in the classics version, you do have the Persians. So that, that kind of, it's not purely oriental. Anyway, Imperium Classics is shockingly pure for a deck builder. You know, we talk about how deck building can be sort of an element in a worker placement engine, such as in Dune Imperium, another game with Imperium in it. Or it can actually be a minor part of a much bigger gameplay system like Mage Knight because I'm contractually obligated to bring up Mage Knight every episode. Imperium Classics is very, very close to being an almost pure deck builder. You have resources that you can accumulate, but only of three different types. And everything is pretty much just a function of cards that are in your hand or, uh, in very rare cases, uh, cards that are in your tableau. But the cards in your tableau, tend you don't tend to have that many of them. 
and they don't tend to be a particularly pronounced element of what you're doing with yourself. I stress this because the amount of gameplay effect that it's able to leverage, despite that, is quite considerable. There are, there are a number of technical terms about where cards start out, and it's a little bit daunting at first, and the rulebook is not ideal, but you have this possibility of seeing your civilization grow and develop in a much more organic and a much more grounded way than most other Civ-type games involved. What do I mean by this? Well, I, I, I've commented in the past that in most Civ games, what you have is, you know, the Roman Empire conquering the... Uh, I, I don't know, Auckland, New Zealand with their tank division that's being backed up by legionnaires or something like that. And it just doesn't make any sense. And everything is acontextual and nothing seems to progress in any kind of, of, of sane order. In Imperium Classics, you start out most of the time as what's called a barbarian state. And you primarily are involved, uh, primarily interested in grabbing as much territory as possible. You subjugate some people, you grab some territory. But the most ad advanced stuff like coinage or democracy or things like that, eh, that's too complicated for you. You don't want to mess with that stuff. You just want to grab more land. At a certain point, though, after you cycle through your deck a number of times, you then shift and become an empire rather than just a barbarian state. And now, getting new territory is much more difficult. Not complicated, just there are fewer cards that can do it for you. And suddenly those cards that got you there, the ones that let you con conquer and ravage all over the, the place, you can't use them anymore. And suddenly that coinage and that democracy that you weren't in a position to use before, suddenly they start looking real good. And this is all done very, very simply. And once you switch to a, an empire rather than a barbarian state, suddenly you're not just about cycling through your deck and adding in new cards. You're suddenly about cycling through your deck so you can buy these very expensive, very, very cool cards. And these resources that you didn't really want to stockpile before. I mean, what? you're a barbarian state. You didn't need to stockpile anything. Eh, you just need a couple people here and there, or maybe some brick every now and then, but eh, whatever. Suddenly now you need like seven brick to buy that really expensive, expensive, fancy thing. And so the way that you get a sense of development in a short deck builder when com short when compared to, say, a three-hour Civ game, is really, really quite striking. Now, it is, as I said, it's a bit daunting. There's a lot of technical terminology, and some there are some things about deck building that it kind of subverts in a, in a subtle way, and it's not very good at identifying. There are one or two core rules that are buried in the glossary. Not cool. I do not appreciate, especially when that leads me to explain the game incorrectly, and now I'm saddled with what we call the guilt. And the faction variety is really cool. So far, I've played with three different factions, the Macedonians, the Persians, and the Vikings. And again, subtle rules changes have massive influence. Vikings especially. They, most nations are able to bury cards in what's called the history. They'll score at the end of the game, but they're out of your deck. Vikings don't do that. Instead of something going to your history, it gets discarded. So suddenly that card that other people are buying that says, you know, play this card, do something awesome, and that, then it goes into your history. They do it as one-shots. The Vikings start looking over and say, hmm, I can keep doing that every, every turn? Hmm. Yeah, I think so. And so you end up with this very difficult-to-manage deck, but with a whole bunch of powerful effects. Anyhow. That's at least with my experience with the Vikings. I really enjoy it. Downtime is an issue. Box says one to four, and that's accurate. The solo system is not great to learn the system, but once you're familiar with the game, it moves smoothly enough, which is characteristic of some of the better solo systems as far as I'm concerned. And I've played it with one, two, and three. Probably my preferred player count is two, because that way I don't have to run the solo system, and I have less time to wait between turns. But I gotta say, as far as giving me a sense of a developing civilization and giving me a sense of faction differentiation and, and showing what the contours of a pure deck builder experience can do, I'm very impressed with Imperium Classics. I don't know how many, how much legs it's gonna have because as I say, it's rather more involved than your traditional pure deck builder. And I don't know if I, I'm always in the mood for like a 45 to 90 minute pure deck builder experience, but I'm very impressed and I'm looking forward to seeing what some of the more esoteric uh, Baroque civilizations like, say, Shangri-La or the Arthurian legends have to offer. I definitely want to see this game. Sounds really good. It's definitely interesting. Uh, again, if you're curious about deck builders and seeing what that engine can do, We've been seeing deck builders ever since Dominion for over a decade do the same kind of thing, or even very similar kinds of things. You know, Shards of Infinity is, is still basically in the same similar kind of mold. And again, when you look at something like Mage Knight, it doesn't feel a whole lot like a deck builder. It's just leveraging deck building to do something else. But Imperium Classics does really interesting stuff. Well, Imperium Legends as well does really interesting stuff with the formula. And so I'd encourage you to give it a look if you're a little bit tired with the traditional formula that's still like deck builders. That is Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends by Nigel Buckle and David Sirte, and it's published by Osprey Games.
All right, you and I today played a couple of two-player games. First one is Let's Make a Bus Route, the dice game, designed by Sachi and put out by Sachi and Sachi. And this is sort of based off their first game, which was Let's Make a Bus Route, which is sort of, you know, flip a card and do what it says. This is roll some dice and do what they say. And it and it, and it, and it uh, followed pretty well the same sort of template. You're picking up passengers, you're planning out your little bus route around the city and dropping them off or, or taking students to school or 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 parents, or elderly, or... Commuters to work. Commuters to work. Tourists to famous sites. While, all the while, wearing down your tires and banging up your bus and... Possibly destroying local infrastructure? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. So what did you think, overall, of Let's Build a Bus Route, the dice game? Let's Make a Bus Route, the dice game? Yes. I preferred the original version because one of the things that people often point to to let's make a bus route is that it has slightly more player interaction by virtue of the map than your standard roll and write. And at least the deck is going to provide a an even distribution for everybody, albeit with different results. The way it worked in the original version was you flip a card and that there's a fixed distribution of cards and everyone's going to have the same total quality and quantity of movement, but at different times. You know, we flip over the black circle and the black circle for you means a certain movement pattern and for me it means something completely different. But by the end of it, we're all going to shake out to the same place. And I appreciated that. It made me feel like there was it smoothed out the experience. It also cut down on downtime considerably uh, because we all kind of knew where we wanted to go and everyone just drew it and we went off to the races. Uh, no pun intended. The dice game, I didn't really feel that the dice added much. And so as a result, it made me feel more like I was doing paperwork again, which, yeah, is, which is the same downside I always feel with a lot of these rolling rides. And I feel like it was blanketed out. Everyone sort of, you know, stayed to the same sort of, you know, path you know what i mean it was balanced out at the end you know you're not i felt more pressure in the original version you know make decisions i i I can only seek to get points in a serious way from a small number of things in the dice game it just seemed like i had more time to do a little bit more of everything yeah and there's only you can only play two players in the dice game so there wasn't much interaction on the map whatsoever yeah you know there's a few times i went across a route but other than that it really wasn't there, but it wasn't terrible. No, it wasn't terrible. Uh, you know, a tiny bit more interaction than your standard roll and write. A tiny bit better theming than your standard roll and write. And uh, I was a little bit disappointed by the fact that, again, the geographical aspect seemed less important. When the finals tallies came up, I had scored the overwhelming bulk of my points through elements that had almost nothing to do with the map. And that made me feel like I was back to doing paperwork, honestly. And that is Let's Make a Bus Route, the dice game. Our second two-player game was Nanga Parbat, designed by Steve Finn, published by Dr. Finn's Games. Okay, I'm going to bring it up because you put an emphasis on Dr. <laughs> I looked just this waiting up. for the trigger. Yeah, that, no, I, you know, look, you're, you're, you're an accomplished troll. I knew you, were, you did this on purpose. This is, don't pretend this was by accident. I looked this up. We talked about this before. His yes. PhD is in philosophy. It is. Philosophers don't generally look highly on philosophers who call themselves doctor. That- I hope. I don't know if it's supposed to be a joke. I don't know if this is just some independent nickname. He might have been called doctor before he even started school. I don't know. But if he's calling himself doctor on the strength of a doctorate in philosophy, that's a choice. It's 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 kind of okay. Like it's it's kind of legitimate, but it's a choice. Anyway, what did you think of Nanga Parvat? Uh, I remember playing the digital version first, and this is why I, I picked up this physical version. You were a big fan of the digital version, as I, I recall. I was, and I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I don't understand the disconnect right off the, our first play. It did not seem the same. It didn't seem as strategic or overall, you know, thinky that it did in the first one. I'm wondering if it was because it was, you know. Uh, leaving and coming back to it type thing so it seemed mm. a, a, like a deeper game because it like took a lot you know what i mean something maybe that felt as though there was more there because it, you know you took a turn a day type thing whereas right. this was back and forth it was just like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> so what you're doing is that you're you know removing animals that all have special abilities and you're putting on your explorers and then you're using the special abilities or not and you're cashing these animals in for you know different or same and scoring a number of points. Things that are interesting in this game are the fact that only there's limited scoring spaces. So if someone takes five different animals, then no one can take that particular space. So it's a little bit of a race to get to those spaces. 
But other than that, it, it wasn't, I don't think it was terrible. I liked how sometimes you could combo the animal abilities together. I'm wondering if that is more of the game, maybe not scoring the animals so quickly and building up a bunch of them and, and, and cycling through a bunch of abilities to, you know, score even more. But I think more plays will let me know. Yeah, I'd be curious in trying it again because I think that it is possible that the timing elements that I find unfortunate in Nanga Parbat are, are partially or perhaps even purely a consequence of how I decided to approach the game. Namely, as is my general tendency, I, would, I went for the, the quickest cash-ins possible. And as a consequence, by the midpoint or so, our options just narrowed down to a laser point which meant that the horizons were so narrow and so limited that I didn't really feel like there was a lot of quality decision-making left because most of the good scoring opportunities were gone, so the only possibility to score were very, very, very large numbers of things. So you needed a large number of different animals or a large number of same animals or a large number of contiguous people. But the problem is the game had, was half gone, so there weren't enough spaces left for huge conglomerations of people. There, there weren't enough animals of the same type left for a large set of the same. And as far as different animals go, there's only so many different types of animals you can deploy, and all the wilds were gone. So it, it really felt like halfway through the game, the game was done, and we were still going through the motions and just collecting things. And at that point, it was just penny-annie nonsense. And I, I I find it really disappointing when games evolve in that way. I want the games to evolve in, organically in a way so that my options kind of expand rather than contract if they are going to change substantially. But of, as I say, that could just be because of how I decided to play it. I wasn't. I was very intrigued by this possibility that you identify. You know, you collect an animal, and at any point during the game, you can you can exhaust that animal and use its special ability. But once you score it, it's gone, whether it's been exhausted or not. So you can't score it and then use its special ability. But again, I, I by the midpoint, I looked around the map, and the special abilities just weren't executable. You just couldn't use them because all the preconditions had been basically obviated by our own decisions. So, and I guess what I'm saying is, uh, I'm wondering if clever play or if just play that shows the game to its fullest potential involves taking a more long view of things and massing larger quantities of goods. Then again, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, the only other work by uh, <coughs> Dr. Finn that I've played is Biblios, which we're not huge fans of, so tough to tell. But it was very, very quick, visually delightful. I have yet to look up any information about animals in the game with which I'm completely unfamiliar. I'm always happy to go down a Wikipedia dive, even if it's about biology or uh, or zoology which is not exactly some of my favorite fields but i blame my high school experience and that was nanga parbat played some more street masters street masters has been in almost constant rotation for the past few weeks which is a testament to our uh, long-term appreciation it's been out for three whole years which means by now it's a bona fide classic i know all-time <laughs> perennial classic here's a, here's a throwback for you exactly we played street masters all of three years uh, I've checked my stats. I've played Street Masters uh, about 100 times by now, which definitely shows that I've been getting my money's worth out of the game. And we did something that we used to do in the old days of Sentinels of the Multiverse, which is to say a boss stage combination was destroying us, and so we decided to keep going back until we could defeat it. And so finally, we were able to defeat the Hotori clan in the peer pressure stage, with the all-star setup of Natalia, Grill, who's a, a gecko judoka, and you played Chan Chan, the, uh, <clears throat> the... The swirling death machine. The kung fu panda. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, you'd only played Chan Chan once before, so it wasn't exactly your perennial favorite, but you did want to go back to her because you felt that you could use her abilities better, and sure enough, you did. Yeah, it was a combination of her abilities plus her massive, massive hit point pool. Yes. Well... I think mostly, and this is one of this is one of my biases, of course, with respect to Natalia, who was played by Huey and Grill and uh, Chan Chan. They all are good at generating and using defense tokens, and I really think that that's the way to go. Most of the characters that I play, that where I feel like I'm doing the the the, the best or being most effective are certainly the ones that either, either generate large quantities of defense tokens for themselves. That would be Grill, or are able to leverage defense tokens offensively. Also, Grill or in a support characters who are able to distribute defense tokens all over the place. That would be Natalia. And the uh, designer insert is another character. Basically, they're Billy and Jimmy Lee from Double Dragon, but in this case, they're the Sadler brothers in the context of the game. Uh, one of them is also very, very good at distributing 
defense tokens, and he's probably one of my other favorite characters. Anyway, suffice to say, uh, Street Masters continues to please, and it's one of those things where we discover a combination or a boss that's very difficult, and we get intrigued and want to keep coming back to it. I want, I, I am therefore perhaps uh, very nervous about introducing the group to Recyclord, who, to say he's difficult, is uh, <clears throat> a massive, massive understatement. But uh, we'll see. Anyway, we've played a number of games of Street Masters, and that's by Adam and Adam Sadler and Brady Sadler and Blacklist Games, and I'm looking forward to the future content that's coming out soon. And those are the games we played this week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. I'm going to introduce a new segment this week, Mark, called... I don't know you can do that. Did you submit it for approval? Well, this is, no, a, a, to the news segment. This is not, an, instead of the news, this is as well in 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 the news segment. This is like an inception is, thing, isn't it? How do you know when a company is swirling the drain? <laughs> First up, we have... So this is a new sub-segment in the style of Michael Walker's patented Who Asked for This? Exactly. Well, I that and, and, oh my God, the death rows are upon us. <laughs> so Capstone picks up Orleans from Tasty Minstrel Games, which uh, was yes. a huge pickup. And uh, why they would release such a game, I'm not sure, but time will tell. So Capstone will be producing Orleans from now on. is a fantastic bag building game with many different ways to play. Cooperative, competitive, and huge des- decision spaces within the game even after that. Check it out if you are so inclined. Second up would be Fantasy Flight Game Reskins Battlestar Galactica (laughs) into an Arkham Horror game. But what I feel they should have done here, Mark, is they really should have picked an IP that they actually had art sets, art assets for. You know, that way I would like to know after this game is released, if there is a single piece of original artwork. (laughs) Yes, uh, they've said that this, this, uh, I did notice that they said that this takes place prior to the events of Arkham Horror, and so it's all it's an all new cast because they've been reusing that cast over and over and over again. The, the characters that were originally in Arkham Horror and showed up in ga- other games. Yeah, but they have the like time. seventeen other Arkham Horror games that they can pull art from. So, well, I saw the only thing that I saw. I have not, of course, consumed a great deal of information about this, given my general distaste for much of Fantasy Flight, my distaste for what they've been doing with Cthulhu style of games, anyway. And the fact that I thought the Battlestar Galactica was never very good. I'm going to say, yeah, this is hitting all the all the, all <laughs> yeah, exactly. the points on this. But I did happen to see that there was novel character artwork. So they're not being completely lazy with their art assets. Yeah, well, I saw the layout. It is definitely just a straight up. I shouldn't say that because I haven't read the rule book. <laughs> From the layout of the game, it looks as though it's a straight up reskin. And Battlestar Galactica, here we go again. Well, you know, it's the possibility for an entire new generation of gamers to pretend that Battlestar Galactica is good. Uh, this is what I'm worried about. You know, it's got hype and people, you know, uh, have played it and they enjoy it. But yeah. people... Who... I was just joking. People can enjoy what they like. They I can. was just they I was can. just being a jerk. It no, was no, just a sarcastic I am, joke. I am just worried about it because not only, like worried we said... Worried about it. Yeah, well, just because not... Well, like I'm always worried is that people's first experience will be this game. And like we said, it's not the greatest of games. Not only that, it is dated. So people who have Battlestar Galactica or have played it in the mm. past and have fond memories of it will now play it again and realize, you know, okay, well, maybe this is not, not only is it dated, but it is it is a little weak in many points already. Well, I think that what is more likely is that people who really enjoyed the Battlestar Galactica game because they enjoyed the show and liked calling people toasters won't have the same appeal because Cthulhu has now been fully done to death and people still enjoy Cthulhu games, but I don't think anyone is going to approach... What's it called again? Undertow? Not Undertow. Unfathomable. They're going to approach Unfathomable, and no one's going to be like... Oh my god. (laughs) Inconceivable is already taken. (laughs) No, it's a pun, right? Fathom for... Yes. Oh, I know what it is. (laughs) Okay. Because it takes place on a boat. You get it? Fathom? Yeah. Boats? Do you get get it, Walker? So clever. It's important to me that you get it. Okay. I doubt that anyone's going to approach Unfathomable and say, finally, a Cthulhu game. Because that's just not... (laughs) Meanwhile, when Battlestar Galactica came out, it was, was, you know, the show was still very popular and people loved the show. And yeah. So I suspect anybody that has Battlestar Galactica is probably going to hold on to it. I think clearly, I think everyone can acknowledge that that it has been rethemed to Arkham Horror because that's what they have the license to and that's what they can do and that's what they've done. Not out of any sort of groundswell of demand that this be the new environment that the mechanics be ported to. 
Yeah, I'll miss, you know, making the Cylon impressions and all the rest. I don't know if you can make a Cthulhu cultist impression. That's not bad. It's it's not as as interesting. Oh, okay. And that is Fantasy Flight Games reskin of Battlestar Galactica. So, Phalanx Games, the erstwhile wargame company, who uh, still owes me a copy of Successors 4th Edition, any day now, any day now, just buying Plantopia. Their next Kickstarter project is going to be a game called Coalitions. This is going to be a grand strategy Napoleonic game, primarily about negotiation and diplomacy. Sign me up. This ticks all my boxes. Grand strategic Napoleonics, deal-making, haggling, light map elements. Oh yeah, I'm so there. Now, of course, I suspect this is going to be very, very far removed from the historical background, which is probably for the best because it's it designs to be a max six-player game. And if you're going to do a grand strategic game about the Napoleonic Wars with six players, somebody has to be Turkey. And that is not a fun place to be <laughs> when you are playing a Napoleonic. Somebody also has to be Prussia, which is also not a hugely great place to be. You get to be relevant for a couple of years, you get to be stomped into the ground, and then you get to show up again at the end of the game. <laughs> Anyway, I've talked about the difficulty of doing grand strategic Napoleonic multiplayer games before. It's very tough, very tricky. It looks like they're taking a very, very light historical view on the topic, which is probably the best way to do it. And so I'm very, very much looking forward to Phalanx's Coalitions. And when looking up Phalanx's Coalitions, I tripped off of Compass Games Coalition, which is also a grand strategic Napoleonic game. Compass Games is a war games publisher that has produced games of, let's say, varying quality and varying editorial control. Uh, Usually their rules are not what you would call transparent, consistent, or complete. And from early reports, that is kind of true of Coalition. But it claims that you can do multiplayer grand strategic Napoleonics in a single evening. So uh, if I ever get a chance... See, I have this vision that in Vancouver, when I arrive in Vancouver, I'm going to find just naturally like half dozen people that desperately just want to play a whole bunch of grand strategic waiting in the airport exactly waiting at the airport they're going to hold like a picture and uh, instead of my name it's just going to be a series of flags <laughs> like period appropriate flags of the countries there so if you ever get a chance i would very very much like to try compass games coalition so mark when looking for things that are interesting in the news i always see some miniatures that always draw me in and i feel okay maybe this will be the system that will bring me back in because I used to be a huge miniature gamer and I'm just I'm starting to, you know, the chant goes in my head just like it does for any, you know, one VL game that, no, Mike, this is not <laughs> going to be the one. But anyway, the one the one studio that brings me in every time is GCT Studios. They have a Bushido game and, oh, yes. and some new figures that just came out for that are amazing. This is a very interesting, you know, small skirmishy type game. If that appeals to you whatsoever or if you just enjoy looking at really interesting miniatures, then check out GCT Studios. I'm always on the lookout for new and clever ways to to meld existing uh, board game mechanisms. And one of those is trick-taking. Trick-taking is it's very seldom used as sort of a, a core engine driving anything else. It's usually done on its own terms. And so when I saw the Board Game Geek preview of Shamans by Cédric Chaboussi, I was immediately intrigued. This is a hidden role backstabby kind of coalition game that is using trick-taking as its fundamental leveraging asset. And I think this is genius because anybody who's played a lot of trick-taking games, especially when you've had to teach new people trick-taking games, has had the experience. They play a card out of suit. You say, so you're really out of the lead suit? And they say, yeah, I don't have the lead suit anymore. Because sometimes people just make mistakes and they play cards out of suit. Here, my understanding is that if you're a certain role, you can play cards out of suit and claim just to be out of the core suit. And so I think it's great when you can take a common misplay and a social misplay experience that many people are familiar with and make that part of your core intrigue. So I'm, uh, it is already out in Europe. It is going to hit English distribution soon, we are told. That is Shamans by Cédric Chaboussi. And lastly for me, back to miniatures again, Games of Workshop has you know put out a new box set for Age of Sigmar called Dominion. It has hobgoblins and empire in it. And if this interests you at all, I suggest you get it quickly because they're going to put out a new rule set again, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks. Yep. <laughs> and that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which is Witchstone. Witchstone was designed by Martino Chiacchiata and Rainer Knizia, distributed by RR Games. And this is a review copy we received from RR Games. It was originally published in Europe by. <laughs> 
which is roughly the sound one makes when being dropkick in the solar plexus. So, Reiner Kinsey has designed uh, one or two games in the past. Can you list them off for me, Mark? No. I've, I've forgotten. No. Oh. Mar- I'll list one, actually. Martina Chiacchiata has designed the Deckscape games and the Detective games, neither of which you have any experience with. He's also co-designed Barbarians the Invasion, Mistea, and Ikeon. This is all through the publishing house Tabula. He's co-designed a lot of games very frequently with his collaborator, Marta Chiacassasi. And it's very unusual for Reiner Knizia to co-design anything. In point of fact, his only other major co-designed release was 2013's Prosperity that he did with Sebastian Bleasdale. Knizia almost exclusively works alone in very much the same way that Martino Chiacchietta almost exclusively co-publishes. It's very strange how some designers seem to gravitate towards that. You know, you think of someone like uh, Kramer or Kiesling, and they almost always co-publish together or with other people. And some people like Knizia just publish by themselves overwhelmingly. And that's a fascinating pattern. So when I saw that Knizia was going to be co-designing a big box game with a designer that has done some interesting stuff, I'm a huge fan of... Barbarians the Invasion or Mistea, but I like some of the stuff that Martino Chiacchiata has done. I was immediately fascinated, especially since anytime Knizia d- d- releases a big box game, I'm there. So, Walker, why don't you give us uh, an unhelpful, unhelpful summary about what one does in Witchstone? Well, Witchstone, the theming is is not really relevant. It's kind of boring. So I thought I got a new name for it, Mark. It's called <laughs> Mega Spin Combo Point Salad. <laughs> Doesn't that sound more exciting? <laughs> So it's what 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 this game is is six sort of mini games, and on their own are not only two are actually interesting, but the way they all interconnect and form this like smooth flowing, constantly engaging light puzzle action efficiency game is really something to experience and witness, Mark. Witness me, Walker. So, like you said, he he uh, lately, probably in the last decade, has just been producing small, lighter games. And the fact that he's this year alone is putting out two large box games is very exciting. He being Ryan McNitzy in this Correct. Case. Yeah, so w- the it's strange because to a certain extent, Witchstone feels to me utterly unlike any Ryan McNitzy game I've ever played before. There's one salient exception, and that's how the action selection mechanism works. The action selection mechanism is almost purely derivative of his 2004 release in Genius in that you have these two hex dominoes with two different symbols on them. You place them down, and based on how well you connect them to other symbols, that will generate, in this case, some number of actions. In Ingenious, it just generated points. And other than that, I this does not feel like a Knizia design at all. That's not necessarily a criticism. There are good games not designed by Reiner Knizia, and there are good games that don't feel like Reiner Knizia games. But I, I, I'm honestly amazed at how unlike the rest of his work this feels. Because as you said, and we'll get into more detail about this later, this is absolutely a point salad game with a series of, I would not say well-connected mechanisms, with a series of, of six almost entirely un- separated, with one exception, actions that constantly give you a steady and small drip, drip, drip of point income. Well, let me go over these actions very quickly, because I think they're so... Basic, that it won't take very long. Energy action, which is putting out all these different routes across, you know, the... The shared board, yeah. The shared board. There's the witch actions, which are going to... Witch actions? Those actions. The witch ones. The witch or witchy of the witch. No, witch is on first. The witches move along the routes that we just talked about, the energy routes. Then there's the pentagram actions, which is whizzing you around this circle over and over again. The crystal actions, because we talked about the main board where you're placing these tiles, they're covered with these crystals that are in your way, and there's a crystal action that not only lets you move them out of your way, but will also give you more actions as you move them off the board. There's the last two actions, which are very boring, but will bring you the biggest points. There's the wand action, which is simply moving up this track and scoring off of things that you've already done. Then there's the scroll action, which gets you two different kinds of cards, which are the spells and the prophecies. And the prophecies are the big points, usually. It's strange that you would say that the wand actions get you a whole lot of points. The wand track is the one that we normally ignore, because this is one of the ways in which this doesn't feel like a Knizia game. There are two different tracks. The Pentagon track is basically a, a, it's a circular track. You're just racing along and getting bennies along the way. And then there's the wand track, which is the trackiest of all tracks that ever did track. And there, half the time it gives you bonus actions, and half the time it gives you 
ar- these arbitrarily arranged point bonuses. And it never seemed to be a particularly salient it, it source It did, of but if you look up the one track, we don't normally go up the one track, but if you look at the spaces that are further up, there are fairly big scoring points on there. Yeah, on their own, on their own terms, but as compared to, say, the guaranteed two points you're going to get every two witch actions or the six point, anyway. I, there was the one time you you yourself got 12 points off of one wand action, and, and that was just it, one space. It was not off of one further. wand action. That's ignoring the fact that I'd already had to spend a whole bunch of other wand actions to get there in the first place. True, but sorry, one space on the wand track. Got yeah, the, the last space. That's kind of like I don't saying. Think, no, it, was, it wasn't the last space. There was, there was, yeah, if you, but if you just, what I'm saying is sorry. if you just focus on the last space True. that you get to the track and you say, well, one space gave you all those points. No, 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 you're ignoring all those other spaces you climbed to get there in the first case. True. That's but, like saying that you can crest everything. Everest in one step. But had you advanced a few more steps, there would have been even more scoring opportunities up there is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, there's points everywhere. Everything you do is going to get you points. And let me let me use this to circle back to one of my complaints about Witchstone, or rather one of my disappointments. The key difference between Witchstone and Ingenious with respect to tile placement is twofold. There are two key differences. One of them is you you trigger clusters rather than just straight lines. In Ingenious, you only get points for office straight lines, whereas in Witchstone, you get clusters. And number two, there are these crystals that are blocking your path. You're not allowed to place any tiles on top of these crystals. They start off in a certain arrangement. So you need to generate crystal actions to move the crystals out of the way so that you can better optimize your placement actions. That part, I think, is great. It's the kind of spatial puzzle I can get behind. It's the kind of spatial puzzle that interacts with an action and efficiency engine. And that part is really, really cool. At a certain point, though, and sometimes that when that point kicks in can be different for different kinds of players and for different kinds of visions, you're just going to be moving crystals around to generate more actions. Witchstone, fundamentally, is a game about generating more actions, especially since no matter what kind of action you're generating, it's going to give you some points. Two points here, three points there, six points here, five points there. So the part where you're moving things around just to open up your board, that part was really cool, and it made me feel like it was integrating with the rest of the game. The part where you need to worry about getting out a root network before other people block your roots, that part I thought was kind of cool too. A little bit of player interaction, and it was a precondition for a different kind of action. All the other actions, it's just standard point-mongering. Just I generate five actions here. Okay, well, how many points can I get out of that thing? Three points on the pentagram. pentagram. Okay, I'm going to get so many points from that. It's okay. It's fine. It's smooth. It's it's relatively good going. As you say, you can build combos. This is going to be two actions here and three actions there and whatever. But at the end of the day, it all ends up feeling samey to me by virtue of the fact that it's all just point salad, point mongering at the end. It is a lot of just racking up the score and, you know, doing combo after combo. But I think you said there was nothing in the pentagram action. I think there is a little bit there because you are taking those tokens that you can add to your board that will make you combo even more, right? And it will help you fill in the spaces that say you've blocked something off and now it'll let you, you know, open that up again, maybe if you've placed them in a certain way. And the fact once you've moved the crystals off, you're fully, you're filling up this bookcase. And the energy action, not only is it opening up spaces for your witch actions, but it's also scoring off the scrolls because a lot of the scrolls, I think the majority of the scrolls are to do with your connections. It's true. Here's the thing. I wish that, and this is what's utterly bizarre because this game feels an awful lot to me like Bonfire in a number of ways. Bonfire was put out by Stefan Feld not too long ago. I'm not suggesting they're derivative of each other. They, they, They clearly were developed independently. But... Witchstone, by virtue of the fact that it's, you know, it's got some tracks and you're scoring points for everything, feels to me far more like a Steffenfeld game. Not that Bonfire didn't feel like a Steffenfeld game, but in Bonfire, and this is this is representative of a comparison with lots of different games, Bonfire, you need to get certain ducks in a row, and then you can do the thing that scores you points. You need to lay the groundwork and set up the preconditions, and then you can do the other action that will score for you. I don't always want that to be the case, but I at least feel like the mechanisms are coming together in a more cohesive way when that is the case. When you talk about setting out a network in Witchstone, and you use that network to then put your witches out of the map, so that's two different kinds of actions that feed in together. Nominally, that that's one of the parts that I like. The, those two actions are more tightly integrated than almost anything else that's going on in Witchstone. The problem is, and this isn't a serious criticism of how the game works, it's just not for not necessarily what I'm looking for in a, in, in a Euro, 
the network is already scoring you lots of points anyway. Everything you're doing gives you some number of points. So I don't feel like I'm building the network because I need to do that in order to get some other thing. I'm just getting points from this thing, and then later on I'll get this points from this other thing. And, and that lends to the feeling of sameness and repetition. Yeah, it's definitely no – there is a sort of buildup as you get more and more actions, but there's – like you said, there's not a buildup of points. You're not building like this tree of of increasingly – bigger points. The only time I ever felt like I had to do this thing in order to accomplish anything exogenous to the immediate points that I was generating was precisely in the context of these scrolls. I, I kind of like that too. The way that you get these scrolls which give you the end game scoring conditions. You have to take actions to acquire them and it'll say you need to have connected these areas of the board or you need to have put witches on these areas of the board or your cluster of actions on your own personal board needs to be of a certain size by the end of the game. That was the only time when I felt like I was operating under any horizon past, well, I'll play this tile and generate the largest pool of actions I can take. Because really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It hardly matters what kind of action I'm generating, so long as I'm generating more. True. The wand has it a little bit, but it covers the whole gamut of everything. So sort of it feeds into what you said. So it really doesn't matter what actions you're doing. But it does sort of give you that build up, like you'll get points based on how many connections you've made or how many of these certain tokens you have. So there is a little bit of the score build up down on the wand. You're right. And, and, I, and I should admit, uh, the early wand space, almost everyone gets the early wand space because, again, everyone generates lots of the various kinds of actions. There's not a whole lot of room for specialization. There's not a whole lot of room for significant player differentiation other than the scrolls. But again, the scrolls just demand you to do specific other things. The first spot on the wand that scores is the number of completed connections you make on the energy grid. But you're already incentivized to fill out your energy grid earlier anyway because that increases the number of places you can send your witches to with other actions. I just wish the game put more choke points on me like that. We've we talked before about how games can be too restrictive. Always getting in your way, never letting you do what you ever do. You use the term handcuffy. I would just talk about it being restrictive and not open enough. And I would have liked a little bit more friction in terms of having to do things in the right order, having to prioritize things temporally. And on rare occasions, Witchstone does do that. But by when once you pass those one or two hurdles or absent those one or two choke points, it's just, well, this placement will give me seven actions of whatever type I don't care, and this placement will give me ten actions of a different type. Oh, okay, I'll take the ten actions because that's more. Yeah, that's, that's the, my next point I had was that, that they are, sometimes there are limitations. They Like you said, they didn't come up very often, but sometimes you would run out of uh, the energy to make the, the connections. Yeah, and, component limitations. Component yeah. limitations. We never, I've never had a problem with running out of witches, but uh, once you've removed all the crystals from, from the map, then you can't do that action anymore. So sort of maximizing into one field is you can get penalized for sometimes because you know all your resource of that particular thing will be used up and now you know that network is finished it's true but there's no you don't really have to feel any sort of serious pain for changing gears again there's no room for specialization in witchstone because all the actions will give you points one way or the other that's one of the big problems with point salad games people deploy the term point salad as a slur and i kind of agree Largely because I have yet to, to to play a true point salad game that can really hold your attention long term over lots of plays because it just lends to this atmosphere of it doesn't matter what I'm doing I'm going to get some points out of this at the at, at the other end of this action so I've got six different actions in Witchstone a couple of them feel a little bit different around the contours and again I, I keep emphasizing I like how the scrolls work I like how the how you have this pressure to build up your energy network at the beginning but past that. I just, every game of Witchstone felt a little bit less of the magic, no pun intended. I don't dislike it by any stretch of the imagination, but it just ends up falling into the same traps that a lot of these types of games do. It's true, but it does give me that feeling at the end of the game that there's still stuff I wanted to do, right? There's, you know, I wish I could go up those few more spaces. It's not as though you're maxing out all the tracks and you ever run out of everything to do. There's always... I wish I could get that one card or I wish I could figure out... Sometimes there's that puzzle, right? Now, if I... That's what I mean with that. You're always constantly engaged. You're not just, you know, doing your turn and, you know, your next turn's always already ready to go type thing. You're always thinking, well, if I play this one or that one. So you're, you're cycling through your different tiles and figuring out how you can, you know, get the seven different actions from doing all these different things to get all of those things that you want. 
Yeah, the puzzle of how to manage your own personal cauldron of action generation, which I would point out has absolutely zero player interaction, is kind of neat. It's not quite a special puzzle. It's not quite a pure efficiency puzzle. It's got a little bit of both. And I did enjoy that. I really do think that this is an interesting evolution of the core Ingenious engine. But again, I, I, I don't know that it was leveraged as well as it could have been. I think that the game length is just about perfect. You're right. When it ends, you always feel like there was more that you could have done and you had to make some compromises on the way in terms of maximizing your score, which is nice. Sometimes when people are really getting into the groove and people are comboing a bunch of different things and generating actions of like four different action types in the same turn, downtime can be a tiny bit of an issue, but the game still moves at a good clip and is very, very... Uh, fair, fair amount of quality decision-making for its length. But again, I, I just felt that the novelty wore off awfully quick in the way that point salad games often do. The one way it does feel like a Reiner Kinsey game is that the actions are fairly basic and the rules are fairly light, but then, you know, the game goes, the decision space is what is what's going to change up the game. That's true. And if you have a memory problem, this game's got you covered. So you've got you've got a, a cube that you you can put on the tile you just placed in case you forget which tile you placed. You have an animal tracker to mark how many actions you've got in case you can't remember how many actions you've got. And you've got another tracker in case you move up the wand, you know, really far, you can put another you know, tile where you started so you can do the actions in order so you don't forget where you started. <laughs> well, let's not let's not say that you need to have a memory problem in order for that to be necessary. We fr- Frequently, in games of Witchstone, you have the situation where it's like, okay, I'm generating six witch, witch actions and two wand actions. I do the two wand actions. Oh, the, these wand actions give me some crystal actions. Okay, fine. Now I've got... <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm saying sometimes it is a lot, but the fact that there's three different areas in which they've got all of these different counters to track, I thought it was interesting. I, I appreciate the effort. I do. And then there's the shields. We, we were talking about the shields. There is... There, you have the shield that hides your your victory point tokens and your tiles, and we felt as though sometimes it, it was just unnecessary. But but I was trying to think today why it would be necessary, and I can I can see in some cases where it would be. If you can see that your opponent can't do a main action, say they can't do a scroll action, then you can key on that and not worry about taking that scroll action at that point. Right. Sure, I and, think... ju- and just do something else, and then oh, they've they've you know drawn that that scroll action now. Well, now I'll take it and get the card that I want because they won't be able to play that tile in time. I think the best virtue of the shields is that they present to you an iconographic representation of the board game map, so you can figure out what the scrolls are asking you to do yes. without checking the back of the rule book. That's what I have next. They have you know some you know some stuff on the back, and it, we weren't exactly sure what all the buildings were, and then we looked had this very useful map on the Which inside. I suppose isn't necessarily a virtue of the screen so much as it is a shortcoming of the main map. <laughs> Six of one, half a dozen the other. I think in all, I think Witchstone is a fantastic game. It is. Not only one that I'll play, but this is one that I'm going to be keeping. It's going to stay on my shelf and because it's a great sort of, I don't want to say gateway game, but it's one that you can bring it onto the table and people who have played before will not need a refresher. It's straightforward. You know what the actions do. You can get into the game right away. And even if someone hasn't played before, they're going to understand it quite quickly and it's a, a not a difficult teach. I'd probably rather play Ingenious, and Ingenious isn't even probably the top one of the top 30 Knizia games that I like. It's enjoyable. I'll play it again when it's put in front of my face, and it's probably one of the better Point Salad games that I've played. But Point Salad games don't hold appeal for me very much, and for reasons that I've articulated. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Biddy, on Twitter at thegamesyoulike. Join us after the closing credits for our further installment of Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. 
you know that street racing doesn't only happen in North America. Really? Over in Japan, apparently there is also street racing, and they drift. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you once again for joining us for Masterpiece Theater in honor of Prospero Hall. I have, once again, but two comments about Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. We are introduced to Han, played by Sung Kang, the coolest bamf I've seen for some time in movies. All he wants to do is snack and crime. But that's okay. I mean, all the protagonists of these movies are criminals anyway. It's almost enough to make up for the negligent underuse of Air Doctor Dr. Vincent Diesel Esquire OBE. 11 out of 10. Mustang update. Walker, did you know that the 1967 Mustang is an ideal drift racer? Of course it is. It's differential and, yeah, let's stop. <laughs> I, I, I don't think we've talked about that. We haven't have yet. We, oh, are we going to wait or are we going to talk? No, I think it's time. Is it time? The I fact think it's that, time. That, that throughout all of these movies and right up to the very last 20, not even 20, last 10 minutes of the movie, it's always foreign. Import Japanese in, cars. Import Japanese cars. Nissans or, or Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi and, yeah, or, yep, yep. And, then, and then now we need the true power. Yes. We will bring in the North American muscle car. Yes. And it will win the day for us. It doesn't matter whether you're drag racing. It doesn't matter whether you're street racing. It doesn't matter whether you're drift racing. Always an American muscle car. It's the answer to everything, really. Apparently. <laughs> it's <laughs> so bizarre. When in doubt. And I love the the parking system. That I, love, I love how they showed, you know, the little, you know, the usual nuances of Japan. Oh, it was a very nuanced presentation of Japanese culture. Yes. Very subtle. (laughs) Extremely subtle and nuanced. Well, thank you very much for joining us for Spike Presents Masterpiece Theaters. Join us next week when numeracy once again reigns supreme and we'll be talking about a a sequel that actually has a number in its title. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.